The following message has been brought to you by Trinity Baptist Church. For more information, visit us on the web at trinitybc.org. I know all of you have been waiting in just an eager expectation, anticipating tonight uh, what book of the Old Testament we're going to jump into next. I actually have one lady with a smile going like, I really was. I know most of you haven't given it a thought at all, but here you are on a Wednesday night being faithful uh, to worship, faithful to prayer, faithful to Bible study, and many of you, some of you rather, are joining us from Awana being out, and you're able to come in and be a part of our summer adult Bible study in here. We are diving into the book of Micah this evening. Uh, We have been walking uh, chronologically through the Old Testament, uh, making our way through the prophets, trying to understand them better in light of the historical context in which they were written. And that helps us tremendously to understand a book like Micah that really parallels a lot of what we looked at in Isaiah. Unfortunately, in one way, it's a little tedious for those of you who are with us through the 66 chapters of Isaiah. Uh, A lot of what Isaiah had to say, God speaking through him, was to Israel, to Judah, at a very rebellious time in their history where God is warning them, because of your sin, judgment is coming. The Assyrians will come in and wipe Israel out. The Babylonians will come in and wipe what is what left is out of the, the southern kingdom Judah some 200 years later. Uh, we look hindsight and see the sovereign hand of God at work through Assyria and through Babylon. Isaiah and Micah are writing before the Assyrian um, captivity for Israel, before the Babylonians come in in the southern kingdom. And they're writing, of course, under the inspiration of God, God making a plea to His people through these prophets to warn them, your sin is grievous, it's offensive in my eyes, God is saying, and I will judge, I will bring judgment upon you because of your sin, but mixed in the middle of all of this is also, it will ultimately be for your good, that this will be the means by which you come to a place of understanding the sinfulness of sin, and there's a promise of restoration, a promise of a future redemption, a, a future even restored kingdom through which Israel would become all that God desired them to be. We've seen these themes of judgment, of a description of sin, of a promise of future restoration and redemption over and over and over again through the words of Isaiah. And now we get to hear another voice echoing those same truths, those same um, promises and, and proclamations from God to His people, actually nearly at the same time. Micah and Isaiah were contemporaries. They lived upon the earth uh, during the same years. And so there is some repetition of material that we're going to look at, but what I hope you find, what I have found, is it's unique in that it's coming from the perspective of Micah. That it's interesting as it is God that is speaking. God God moves upon His prophets. God moved upon the apostles and the writers of the New Testament in a way that did not override their personalities nor their perspectives of, uh, perspective of things, their way of talking, their way of describing, the imagery even utilized. It's distinct to Micah, uh, even though they're dealing with the same themes. And so it is of great benefit to look through and study through this book. It's much shorter, so we won't get bogged down in it. But, but again, looking through these repetition of themes of judgment, of a pronouncement of sin, of a promise of redemption, recurring even two or three times within the short book of Micah, just as it did over and over and over again through Isaiah.
Isaiah and Will through Jeremiah and many of the other prophets even echoing the same message. And we read it and we think, at least I kind of like to think, wouldn't this have gotten through to these people? Like how thick-headed can you be that God sends prophet after prophet with the same warning, uh, the same message, and yet they were hardened in their hearing. And then we sort of step back and examine our own hearts, our own lives, and the truth is, we often are just as stubborn. We often can sit in the same, uh, under the same truth being preached over and over and over again and hear it week out and week in from even different voices that are proclaiming it. And it not resonate in our hearts as it ought. And so it is, even as we think of the repetitious nature of it, a call to awaken our hearts to hear what is written and to not just turn a deaf ear to it. And so though tonight's message Really, even the points that I will be bringing could have been made from and have been made from many of the messages we looked at in Isaiah. I I hope you listen with fresh ears, look to it with fresh eyes this evening, and ask God, you know, God, speak to me through your word tonight. As we begin an introduction to every book of Old Testament, I don't know if you found it beneficial, I hope you have, I do, to watch these little cartoon videos. I think they're very helpful and giving us the big picture of the book. It gives us a little bit of a trajectory to know where we're going and how what we're reading in the beginning fits in the grand scheme that unfolds in the book, uh, whether that's Isaiah or Micah or any of the other prophets. So I want us to begin our study uh, by watching this video overview of the book of Micah. The book of the prophet Micah. Micah lived in a small town named Moreshet in the southern kingdom of Judah, about the same time as Isaiah. And both the northern and southern kingdoms of Israel had split long ago, and both had been violating their covenant with the God of Israel. So Micah warned that God would bring the big bad empire of Assyria to take out the northern kingdom and come ravage Jerusalem. And he also warned that after them, Babylon would bring an even greater destruction. Like all the prophets, Micah spoke on God's behalf to accuse Israel. Or as he puts it in chapter 3, I am filled with strength, with the Spirit of God, with justice and power to declare how Israel has rebelled. And so most of this book explores Micah's accusations and his warnings of God's judgment on Israel. But Micah also had a message of hope that countered these warnings about the restoration God would bring on the other side of his judgment. And if you dive into the book with us, you'll see how this works. So the first two sections of the book develop Micah's accusations and warnings against Israel and its leaders. So part one opens with the poetic description of God appearing over Israel, just like he did at Mount Sinai, with fire and smoke and earthquake. But he hasn't come to make a covenant this time. He's come to bring his judgment on Israel for over 500 years of rebellion. Micah goes on to name all of these towns and cities in Israel that are the culprits of all of this rebellion, God's coming for them. But why exactly? So Micah picks a fight with Israel's leaders. He says that they've become wealthy through theft and greed. He alludes to the story of Ahab stealing a family vineyard from Naboth in 1 Kings chapter 21. But also it's because Israel's prophets are corrupt. They're quite happy to offer promises of God's protection to anyone who can afford to pay them. No, Micah says, God has withdrawn his protection from Israel. In the second section of accusations, Micah describes even more how Israel's leaders and prophets have together committed grave injustice. They run the land through bribery, they bend justice to favor the wealthy, and the poor are deprived of their land, their security, and their 
And all of this is a violation of the laws of the Torah, which declare it illegal to sell land that belongs to families, even if they're poor. And so we find out that God's judgment is going to take the form of an oppressive nation that comes to take out the northern kingdom and Jerusalem and its temple, which will be reduced to ruins. Now these are very stiff warnings, and they're not the final word. Each of these warning sections is concluded with a striking promise of hope. So first is a poem about how God is like a shepherd who's going to rescue and regather his flock, which is the remnant of his people. And he's going to bring them all back to good pasture and become their king once more. The second warning section is concluded by picking up this image of the ruined Jerusalem temple. And Micah says this won't be permanent. One day God is going to exalt his temple. He's going to fill it with his presence and fill the city with the remnant of his people. And so God's purpose is to make Israel the meeting place of heaven and earth so that all nations will stream to Jerusalem where God becomes the king of all the nations, bringing peace to the earth. Now these two concluding poems of hope are very powerful. And the next section of the book actually develops them further in a beautifully designed series of poems that are entirely about the future hope of Israel and the nations. So we learn that after the Assyrian attack, Israel will be conquered and exiled to Babylon. But from there, God will restore his people and bring them back to the land. And then we learn that in the new Jerusalem, a new messianic king from the line of David will come. He'll be born in Bethlehem and then rule in Jerusalem over the restored people of God. Finally, in this messianic kingdom of God, the faithful remnant of God's people will become that blessing among the nations. But at the same time, God will bring his final justice and remove evil from the world. The final section of the book returns to this pattern of warning followed by hope that we saw in the first parts of the book. So Micah exposes again the unjust economic practices of Israel's leaders and how it's destroying the land and its people. And here Micah offers his famous words that summarize what it means for Israel to follow their God. He has told you, O human, what is good and what the Lord requires of you to do justice, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. This is exactly what Israel has not been doing, and so they will come to ruin. However, the book ends with another powerful note of hope. Israel is personified as an individual who is sitting alone in shame and defeat. It's a clear image of Israel's destruction and exile. And this individual is watching for God's mercy, and he begs God to listen and forgive. But why? Why should God listen to and forgive this faithless and rebellious people? Well, the poet offers two reasons. First, he says, because of God's character. Who is a God like you who forgives sin and pardons rebellion? He knows that God's mercy is more powerful than his anger or his judgment. And the second reason is because of God's promises. He says, you will stay true to Jacob and show covenant love to Abraham as you swore so long ago. Now, these are the final words of the book. They're an allusion to God's covenant promises to Abraham and his family all the way back in the book of Genesis, that all nations would find God's blessing through Abraham's family. But to become a blessing to the nations, Israel must first be faithful to their God. And so this explains this back and forth between judgment and hope in the book of Micah. If God's going to bless the nations through Israel, then he must confront and judge the evil among his people. But his judgment is what leads to hope. 
Because God's covenant love and promise are more powerful than human evil, and His ultimate purpose is not to destroy, it's to save and redeem. Or as the concluding lines of the book put it, God delights in covenant love, so He will again show compassion. He will trample our evil. He will toss our sins into the depths of the sea. And that's what the book of Micah is all about. As you can tell, even in that overview, when you hear the word minor prophet, don't think less important. Uh, Minor just simply meaning there are some of the shorter books of the prophets compared to the length of Isaiah or Jeremiah or Ezekiel, not dealing at all uh, with the importance of the message delivered. Uh, Oftentimes I find the minor prophets speak more powerfully because of their brevity and how punctual they are to make the point rather than it going on chapter after chapter after chapter. And so, uh, with that introduction, let's dive in. Micah chapter 1. I want to read verse 1 to you as we we talk a little bit about who Micah is. The word of the Lord, of Yahweh, Jehovah, that came to Micah of Meresheth in the days of Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, which he saw concerning Samaria and Jerusalem. That is nearly the extent of what we know of this man, Micah. Uh, Not much information uh, that we can gather uh, from other resources, other books that that mention him. There are others by the name of Micah, not the same Micah uh, that is the author of this book here. Uh, God called him, as he did all of the prophets, to deliver this proclamation, this word, this message to his people. I want to go ahead for sake of time and just walk through uh, the, the message, the points that I want to bring to you, and we'll read the Scripture as we make each point walking through it. And so as we think of God and His judgment, chapter 1 is all about the judgment of God. Chapter 2 as well. We'll just, we'll just look to chapter 1 this evening. Uh, chapter 2, we'll get into more particular accusations that are even unique from what Isaiah called out against um, the people of God and the, the wickedness that they were committing. And so we can unfortunately draw many parallels even to our culture today in chapter 2 as we as a culture draw farther and farther, rather fall farther and farther away from God. And so we'll look at that next week. But this week, chapter 1, and I want you to see first of all in verses 2 and 3 that God sees the injustices of this life and He will bring judgment. That God sees the wrongs that are done, the things that many think are done and hidden in, 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 out of the sight of everyone else that nobody knows about, that they're going to get away with, and that they do get away with, even in the here and now, whether that be because it's concealed, or whether that be because they have the power that can prevent others from doing anything about it, and so they do it, and they take advantage of people, and they're wronging others. Chapter 1, especially these verses, make us understand and realize there is a God in heaven sitting upon the throne. And this God is a God who sees it all. And He is a God before whom all of us, everyone, will stand accountable. The prophecy of Micah begins, verse 2, Hear all you peoples, listen, O earth, and all that is in it. Let the Lord God be a witness against you. The Lord from His holy temple. For behold, the Lord is coming out of His place. He will come down and tread on the high places of the earth. He says the Lord is a witness. 
Lord, is a witness against you, Israel, and all the wickedness that you have committed. And he will one day speak against you. Though it seems like now he's far off and distant, and it seems as if the wicked are, are even prospering in their wickedness, as they even were in that day and age for that present time, Mike is saying there is a day of reckoning. There is a day of retribution that is coming. God will come forth. The Lord will come down. He will come out of His palace, out of His place, out of His holy temple. And He will tread on the high places of the earth. I can remember as a teenager uh, being a witness to a car accident on the way home from baseball practice one day and got to give the little statement to the officer about what I saw. I was a, a witness. You, you've seen it, you've beheld it, and therefore you can give your account of it. God is a witness to the evil of His people, and by application we know God is a witness to every evil committed on the face of planet earth. Proverbs 15 and verse 3 says, The eyes of the Lord are in every place, beholding the good and the evil. Good verse, Candace, we need to make our children memorize that verse. I think I probably memorized it as a child. We need to make it a key verse in Awana. The, the eyes of the Lord are in every place. There's nowhere that you go that you can escape the knowledge of God, the vision of God that sees, that knows all. And God sees every wicked act that's ever committed. Nothing happens ever, anywhere, that God is unaware of, that goes unnoticed by a sovereign God. And the Scriptures are clear. The message for Israel to understand, God sees. And God is not always going to remain far off and distant, seemingly out of the picture. And that God is in the picture. And God is making a record of every wrong. And there is coming a day that God will come down. God came down through Assyria. God came down through Babylon. God brought judgment and destruction upon His people. And we know the promise even of Revelation. Jesus is returning. And He will come riding on that white horse with a, a sword of fire coming out of His mouth. It's a picture of divine judgment. The wrath of God. It says in Hebrews, it's appointed unto man once to die, and after this the judgment. We might go to Him before He comes to us, but all of us will stand accountable before Holy God one way or another. It's not unusual in this broken world for it to appear like the wicked are prospering. And we, we, we look even in society and culture today, and it can appear as if, and really they are in the temporary day-to-day -day life in this broken world, it seems like they're going to triumph, that they're going to win, that sometimes it's better to be wicked than it is to be good. And that is a lie of Satan. It is a deceitfulness that comes on by not understanding the nature of eternity and just how brief this life really is. Uh, understand, as we look to these words even that Micah gave to the people of God, uh, God sees it all. Doesn't matter who it is or where it is, how powerful they are, how much they're, they're getting away with in the here and now. God one day will bring judgment. God brought judgment upon His people for their wickedness. He sees the injustices of this life and He will bring judgment cause of it. Notice secondly, and this is a big portion, verses 4 through 16, God's judgment, it will be swift and thorough. It is a severe judgment 
that God is going to bring upon His people because of their sin, because of their wickedness. Verse 4, The mountains will melt under Him. Think of the might of a mountain and how just it's a rock, for goodness sake. It's, it's a symbol of strength. And, and here, that's what Micah is meaning it as. The, the mountains will melt under Him. Even the strongest will, will fall before Him. The, the valleys will split like wax before the fire, like water pours down a steep place. Melting mountains, splitting valleys, Wax in a fire melting, and then water pouring over uh, a steep place. All the pictures, the imagery that Micah wants us to have in mind as we think about the judgment of God. Not the love of God that we so often like to speak about, but the judgment of God. Like a a fire melting wax, like a a mountain melting, like water pouring over a waterfall is the... The judgment of God that's going to come upon His people. Now, many of you know, my wife and I just got back two weeks ago, a week and a half ago, from getting to go out to California and see Yosemite National Park. It was a wonderful trip. Left the kids with grandparents, so we got away for the first time in a long while. And it was absolutely beautiful out there at Yosemite, especially Yosemite is known for all of the waterfalls. Amazing in that valley, everywhere you look, especially this time of year with the snow melt, there were waterfalls everywhere. I've got a picture of one that really surprised us, um, a picture from years ago of a waterfall that we saw that we had no idea it could get down to such a little trickle. Uh, this is Vernal Falls, and that picture was taken when it was flowing at five cubic feet a second. So five cubic foot of water a second coming over the cliff, and that really was almost comical compared to what we saw. Uh, the second picture is of 100 cubic feet uh, a second. Next picture goes up to 500. We're looking a little bit more like a waterfall. Next one's 2,000 cubic feet a second. The next one's 3,000 cubic feet a square second. So as you can see, that's a pretty mighty waterfall. Well, when we were out there, because of all the snow that they had in the Sierra Nevadas, all the snowpack that was melting, we actually got to see that waterfall at 3,500 cubic feet a second. And that's actually a picture I took. And to give you the magnitude of that picture, it's hard to tell, but those little dots on the little flat part to the right of the waterfall, that's actually people that are standing there on a lookout that's right by the waterfall. It was magnificent. To We actually hiked this trail. There's a picture of where those people were standing. The amount of water moving over the edge of a cliff. I give you that imagery, and I want you to remember that imagery, and not as I thought as I was standing there. I was amazed just at the beauty of God's creation as you're standing there. But Micah, as he's thinking of the judgment of God, he has this imagery in mind of a raging waterfall falling off the the cliff of a rock of the mountain. And you all know from, what, a week and a half ago, two weeks ago, when that rain came down, we got like five inches in an hour, hour and a half. Isn't it amazing what a little bit of water moving can do? That's a picture of the judgment of God. That's a picture of what is poured out by God against sin, against sinners, because of our wickedness. God would bring the Assyrians in and like water wiping out the, 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 the valley. 
God withdrew the armies of Assyria and Babylon, will and does and did, uh, wipe His people out. Verses 5-16, through 16, just go ahead and leave the picture of the waterfall. Well, I put this number 2 up there. You can go back to the second point slide there. Verses 5-16 through 16 continue to describe this judgment that's going to come upon the people of God. And we won't dwell long on it, but I do want to read through it for you. Verse 5, all this is for the transgression of Jacob. Because of the waywardness, the sinfulness, the the transgression of Jacob, the people of God. God judges sins, and for the sins of the house of Israel. What is the transgression of Jacob? Is it not Samaria? He just names the whole place and says the whole place has gone to wicked immorality and injustice and idolatry. And what are the high places of Judah? Are they not Jerusalem? The high places were Uh, the areas that they would build little shrines and little temples to worship all of these little false pagan idols and gods of of the nations that surrounded them that that none of the kings would ever do away with, even the good kings of Judah. Therefore, he says in verse 6, I will make Samaria a heap of ruins in the field, places for planting a vineyard. I will pour down her stones into the valley, and I will uncover her foundations. All her carved images shall be beaten to pieces, all of these idols that they've made. And all her pay as a harlot shall be burned with fire. All her idols I will lay desolate, for she gathered it from the pay of a harlot, and they shall return to the pay of a harlot. That's speaking even of the the gross immoral practice of many pagan uh, idol worship um, temples in that day and age where prostitution was a, a part even of the worship of such idols taking place within the people of God, the promised land that God had given. And he says that pay that they've received shall return to the pay of a harlot. And then he take that to mean the Assyrians and Babylonians when they come in and and ransack the whole land, take everything. Uh, Much of what they take will be used back in Assyria and Babylon for such purpose. Therefore, verse 8, I will wail and howl. I believe this goes back to first person, Micah speaking here. I will go stripped and naked. I will make a wailing like the jackals and a mourning like the ostriches, for her wounds are incurable, for it has come to Judah. It has come to the gate of my people, to Jerusalem. Um, Micah so grieved at this vision of judgment that was going to come upon the people of God. And now, verses 10 through 16, he starts calling out different cities. And these cities, in Hebrew, there's even word plays that are going on with the meaning of the name of the city and the sin that they were committing, or at least sort of known for. In English, we don't really see the the poetry, poetic aspect of it. Uh, But he's naming all the places, much like I may speak of judgment coming on Florida and say of Miami and list whatever sins Miami's known for, and Orlando and Pensacola and Tampa and Keystone Heights, and you know, just naming all of these key places in Israel. Tell it not in Gath, weep not at all. Gath is a, it was a city of the Philistines. He's saying our shame doesn't need to be widespread. It's bad enough that it's happening. Don't let the enemies of Israel know of it. And Beth Athrah, roll yourself in the dust. Pass by in naked shame, you inhabitants of uh, Shafer, the inhabitants of Zan, uh, Zanon does not go out. Bethazel mourns. Its place to stand is taken away from you. For the inhabitants of Merith pined for good, but disaster came down from the Lord to the gate of Jerusalem. All inhabitants of Lachish harnessed a chariot 
to the swift seas. She was the beginning of sin to the daughter of Zion. Uh, that was a city that was well fortified, known for its strength. Um, and it's believed even in their strength, they were one of the first to turn away from their dependence upon God. For the transgressions of Israel were found in you. Therefore you shall not give presents to Morasheth Gath, the house, or I'm sorry, you shall give presents to Morasheth Gath, to uh, the house of Axib shall be a lie to the kings of Israel. I will yet bring an heir to you, O inhabitants of Marashah. The glory of Israel shall come to Adalam. All of this is saying, an enemy people, people not Israel, that are not of God's people, will be receiving the glory of Israel. They're going to come in and have their way with the Israelites. And, and what good of value and worth and monetary um, possessions is going to be stripped away and given to these foreign lands. Make yourself bald and cut off your hair because of your precious children. Enlarge your baldness like an eagle, for they shall go, go down uh, from you into captivity. Now, baldness was actually, as you're rubbing your head, it was actually forbidden under the law. Uh, they were not to shave their heads. You can think of, uh, my mind goes to Egypt and the priests of Egypt involved in the pagan worship. If you know in the pictures, if you think of the Egyptian like leaders of the worship that was going on there, they shaved their heads. It was a sign of, of cultic practice, of pagan worship. Here, he's saying, you do need to shave your head, not as a sign of, of being involved in pagan worship, but as a sign of mourning, as a sign of repentance, as a sign of grief before God because of this great judgment that is going to come upon the people of God. And so all of that, again in Hebrew, it makes more sense with the meaning of these names and what he writes. Uh, but all of this is just a poetic way of saying all the land of Israel and even the southern kingdom of Judah is coming under the judgment of God. God has seen their wickedness. God has had patience for generation after generation. He has even intervened through His prophets time and time and time again. And yet they never would listen. They never would turn. They never would repent. They continued on in their arrogant, wayward sin. God says a day of reckoning is coming. A day of great judgment. And we'll see if it unfolds through Assyria, through Babylon, that will be coming upon the people of God. Be not deceived. God is not mocked. God, God will have the last day. In the end, God wins. Um, God, God will bring judgment. A last, a third, a final point. Realize as we think of even this proclamation of judgment, this accusation of sin that we're reading in chapter 1, that even in it, we see the heart of God for sinners. What I mean by the heart of God for sinners is we see His love and His grace and His mercy even in these severe words that are given in chapter 1. God's heart is that the sinner hears His warning and repents. God's heart is that the sinner hears His warning and repents. How does the whole proclamation of judgment here begin in verse 2? Look back to the beginning. Hear! God's calling out to a people in their sin prior to His judgment that is so severe that is coming. And He's, he's warning them. He's even, he's even calling out and begging them, Hear! Hear! All you people, listen, O you earth, and all that is in it. 
is calling for their attention. He's calling for them to come to understand the severity of the place that they have brought themselves to. To understand the sinfulness of their sin and the judgment of God that is coming upon them and to do something about it. I've told you this before as we've looked to these sort of recurring themes in all of the books of the prophets that we're looking to. Hear me, any time that God gives a, a word of impending judgment, so He's not just pouring the judgment out. He's actually, before the judgment, warning people about the judgment that's coming. You realize that is a grace of God. That is an opportunity for repentance to be found prior to the judgment coming. You think of the, the, the story of Jonah even, and the judgment that God said was coming upon the city of Nineveh. Uh, Forty days was all that Jonah even had to say, and God's going to destroy you. What was that? God was going to destroy them, but it was actually the grace of God giving a message of warning so that the people could hear. And as the Ninevites did, they, they, they can repent then. And they can say, God, I understand just how messed up we've been. God, I, I confess it before You. I repent about it. And they grieved and were, were mourning over their sin. And they, they changed what they were doing before God. And God then did what? He relented of the judgment that He was going to pour out upon them. You realize that would have never happened if God would have just zapped them with the judgment? He gave them the warning because the warning is actually a grace of God that brings about opportunity for repentance to be found. You're here tonight. And you've got a preacher, no matter how good or bad he is, you've got a preacher who's proclaiming a message of impending judgment from God. That you will stand accountable before God someday, whether He returns to judge the living and the dead, or whether you die and go to be there standing before Him. It's, a, it's actually a grace of God that you're here tonight, and that we've got a word from the Lord, a proclamation from Him, even in the severity of the warning of hell and the warning of judgment. It's a grace of God that we can know what is coming, and hopefully that will awaken our hearts to the sinfulness of sin and lead us to a place of repentance before God. And the beauty of the God of the Scripture is, when we get to that place of understanding our sin and repenting, what we find is that God delights in forgiveness. Every time, you'll never find in all of the Scripture, throughout all the history recorded, a person repenting and, and confessing their sin before God, and God saying, tough, you're going to get the judgment anyhow. Off with you. God, God, never, God never turns away the broken and contrite heart. It's said over and over again, and it's taught in the illustrations, the, the stories that are told over and over again, that any time a wayward, stubborn, hard-hearted sinner hears the word of warning that God gives and repents, what does God do? The prodigal father, or the son, father of the prodigal son who... He is the prodigal father, prodigal in his love. He's the one that runs to greet the wayward son when the son returns. And even though the son has nothing to offer, the son deserves shame and mockery for his sin and rebellion. But the father runs to greet him and throws a celebration because of his return. That's revealing to us the heart of God, that God delights in the forgiveness of sinners. Ezekiel 33 and verse 11 it's a verse a couple of years ago. It's actually through reading 
the book Gentle and Lowly and the book on the heart of Christ being so so for the sinner's repentance and, and, and the grace and gentleness and uh, lowliness even of, of Christ's love for us, that this verse was emphasized that so it really profoundly changed my view of God because it's easy to think, well, God's a God that is glorified in the destruction of sinners. And He is. He, he does receive glory when those who have done wrong receive the just recompense of their error, of their waywardness. Um, we, we even sense some of that when we demand justice for wrongdoing. We're even more so in part of God. But that doesn't, that doesn't thrill or delight the heart of God. God is grieved at that, actually, in His love for us. But the heart of God rejoices in the sinner's repentance. Say to them, Ezekiel 33 and verse 11, As I live, says the Lord, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked. The wicked must die, and the wicked will die, and the wicked will be condemned, and the wicked will be judged. And though God does receive a glory in it, He does because His righteousness is revealed in it, His holiness is manifested through it, God is glorified in the destruction of the wicked. God's heart does not find pleasure in it. I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn, turn from your evil ways, for why should you die, O house of Israel? Here in the first chapter of Micah, even if there is a severe accusation of sin and a warning of such severe impending judgment that will come upon God's people. God's heart, even in the first verse, is heard. Hear, would you just hear? Would you just listen? And tonight, God is making the same appeal through me, through you. Whether Whatever you're doing, if you're in here and you're not saved, you never come to Christ, never repented and believed upon God and Jesus for His grace and His mercy. You just hear, listen. He doesn't delight in destruction, but He will condemn you to hell if you die in your sin. He must because He's righteous and holy. And He even will be glorified in that. But His heart takes no pleasure in it. But what pleases His heart is when the sinner repents. Maybe you're here tonight living life that you know is not right before Him. And you've been running and hiding and pretending and putting on the show while you're here. I beg you as we close in an invitation, turn to God, own up to it, confess it, and then just seek His forgiveness and ask Him to save you because of Christ and what Jesus has done for you. And He will. Not only is it that He will, He delights in it. He takes pleasure in it. The sinner truly repents and He gets to show just how loving, just how gracious, and just how merciful He truly is. Heavenly Father, we come to You and we thank You for who You are. You're not a God who overlooks sin and wrongdoing. You are holy. You are just. And you demand the penalty. And Lord, when we understand that side of who You are, it really leads us to understand more fully what Jesus actually bore upon that cross. That He did take that wrath that was deserved upon sinners and He took it upon Himself. He paid the penalty for us. And that we can experience Your forgiveness. That we can know Your grace and Your love and Your redemption and Your restoration. Lord, thank You for who You are and Your love and grace and mercy to us through Jesus. And I do pray if there be anyone in here who's never come to You in His name, uh, someone who's living in sin, uh, someone who is 
and hard-hearted and rebellious and stubborn in it, thinking it's not a big deal. May they come to see you see it all, and someday they will stand in judgment because of it. Lord, may that lead them under the weight of that to repent, to confess it before you, and to find that you delight in forgiving them. Lord, work, I pray, in this invitation.